Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 22, we're going to look at the whole chapter, Lord willing, this morning. Genesis 22 is our text. It was after the difficult trial of having to send Ishmael away, if you recall last week, that God gave Abraham and Sarah in their house a season of rest from a completely unlooked for event. A heathen king comes out and wants to make a covenant of peace with them and have, a, have a, an agreement of, of mutual love and respect, something that we should seek for from everyone in the world. And it just goes to show us, beloved, that whatever trial or tribulation, whatever trouble or confusion, whatever sorrow or sadness you may be in, God has already declared, and he already knows, the day it will end and the day that you will have rest. Because if you are his, your trials will end and you will only know rest and joy and peace. And that day gets closer every moment. Can you trust him one more day? Can you wait on him one more day? That's all you really need to do. You just need to trust in him today because tomorrow he'll give you the grace to trust in him tomorrow. You want to live your whole life in the moment. No one can do that. Just trust in him today and see what he does tomorrow. And no doubt after uh, Abraham's life of many trials and many tribulations, we don't know, by the way, how many years chapter 22 takes place after 21. There's all kinds of theories, but it's certainly a significant number of years because uh, Isaac is um, three years old at the end of 21 and he's a young man in 22, but that leaves a particular range. But think of Abraham's life that we've been seeing now, the trials and tribulations after he had to leave everything, go to a foreign land, wander in it for years among hostile peoples, pagan peoples who worshiped other gods, who practiced things like human sacrifice. He had to endure famine and drought in the midst of that land in which he was a stranger and a sojourner. And then he had a quarrel in his own house where he he and his nephew, whom he loved, whom he raised as a son, his older brother's son who died, Lot and his whole family and his whole house, they had to separate. And so his family's divided again even after he leaves. And then he has to go down to Egypt, that powerful, pagan, dangerous country, and he's thrown out of Egypt and disgraced. He had to go to war with four kings and lost many, no doubt, in his house, though he was victorious, traveling hundreds of miles and warring. He had his wife taken from him twice, no doubt, partly his fault, but that was difficult to go through as well. He had his property stolen by servants of a foreign king, a king whose land he was in, and he had to endure that. And of course, most of all, he had to wait 25 years, he and Sarah both, For that promise that God promised them at the beginning, that their seed would be a blessing, that in their seed the whole world would be blessed. And they would have known that meant the promise to Eve was now given to them. The salvation of the world in their son Isaac somehow furthered on in that conception and that birth and didn't come for 25 years. And now Isaac is on the scene. And now he's a young man. You had to, you had to, you have to believe that Abraham and Sarah thought, you know what, their, their time is done. They've done, they've carried the, the load for a long time. It's time to pass the baton to Isaac, right? They're ready to go home and be with the Lord and have the Lord say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You've, you've finished the race. You've kept the faith. 
They're ready for that. They put in their time. I can see Abraham and Sarah just getting ready and dreaming about that cabin in the mountains, Colorado, sighting in long-range, high-caliber rifles for bighorn sheep and mountain lion, maybe. Are we still talking about Abraham? But you, you have to think that they're thinking, you know, it's time to, it's time to pass the baton. They've served. They've, they've done their work. They've been in the church, leading the church. And I know many of you, as we get older, right, we're in the church for decades. We go through difficult times. We go through arduous troubles. We see God building his church, but there's spiritual warfare. And I know many of you have been bloodied in spiritual warfare. And it's hard. And you've seen family members you've had to separate from. And maybe you've lost work because of the Lord. You were faithful to him. Maybe you were persecuted. More and more, that's a reality in this nation. Hated, called a hater, who knows what, because of the Lord. You've, you've been through difficulties. And you've been tried and you've been tested and you've been through trials and you've been through tribulations. Spiritual warfare with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you've carried the burden of the heat of the day. You've served in the ministries of the church. You've given your time and your talents and your treasure. And it's time. It's time for that younger generation, right? To step up and to take the low. To put their shoulder to the wheel, you know? And you can fade, maybe. And I know we feel that as we grow older, we feel that more and more. And and there's truth. The younger generation has to step up, right? They have to take the load. But I can tell you this. If you're breathing and you're a believer, God is not done with you. He still has something for you to do. And Abraham and Sarah did not realize it, but the greatest trial of their lives was about to come. Abraham, maybe 120 years old, maybe 113, somewhere in that range. The greatest trial of his life. Would you be willing? Are you ready? If God were to suddenly give you the greatest trial of your life, would you be able to trust in him and persevere? In Abraham's trial, we have one of the clearest anticipations of the gospel in all of the Old Testament Because he was faithful, we are blessed. The rabbis call this text that we're about to look at the Akidah. In English, we just say the binding of Isaac. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we pray that you would bless this word. What a a powerful word it is. What a picture of Jesus and what you've done for us. Help us to see you more clearly in this word and God change us for having spent time with you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 22. This is the word of Almighty God. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, behold me. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father, and he said, behold me, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there, and he placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Behold me. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram And he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing. And you have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, who is his firstborn, Buz, his brother Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hadso, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethul. And Bethul begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maacah. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning, I pray. You probably noticed, but I read the text more in truth to the Hebrew, even in the order of the words, and putting in the word behold where it is in the text. I don't like it when they take out the beholds. I want to behold the beholds. But I also notice at the end, and we're not going to say anything about the end of the text, that we, tra- we do begin the transition, right? The whole reason for the 
a little genealogy of Nahor is because we get introduced to Rebekah, who's going to be Isaac's wife. But I want you to notice this morning the type and its fulfillment. I want you to notice the type and its fulfillment. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. There's a difference between testing and tempting. Even uh, the, though the words are the same in both Hebrew and Greek, by the way. But context tells us, is it a test or is it a temptation? In general, we can say that uh, God tests his people. But in the test, Satan will tempt them. That's been true since the garden. We know theologically that in the garden there was the test of the trees. It was a probation period. It was a test. But Satan used it as a temptation to bring down Adam and Eve. And when God tests us, again, it's for our good because he loves us and he proves us as fine gold. But Satan seeks in that test to destroy us. And to show us to be sinful and haters of God. As the life of Job shows. God testing him. Satan tempting him. And we see this in James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life. Which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. God never tempts. Satan always tempts. But we don't even need Satan to tempt us. As scripture says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Part of the reason that we're susceptible to temptation is because we're sinners and we love sin. And we desire evil and we're putty in Satan's hands because of that. And we need God to pass the test. And there's a sense in which, as I said... God tests all of his people. Psalm 11.5, he tests the righteous. Psalm 7.9, he tests the minds and hearts. It's how we glorify God. It's how we show forth his glory when we pass the test. It's the greatest thing we can do in this world, to be tested and to be shown that, yes, God is with us. That's what God boasted about Job, that Job would pass the test, and he did. And so Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Same word, tests. You've been grieved by that, Peter says. Why? So that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, here it is, may be found to praise and honor and to the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God will heap back upon us rewards and treasures. You know, I asked you earlier, if you've been serving in the church a long time and God called you to do something, would you see it as a difficult chore? Or would you see it, and I would challenge you to see it this way, God is not done yet piling up your rewards in heaven. He wants to give you another round. And that's what it is when God gives us a difficult work. He's storing up. He's giving you reward because God rewards us when we are in the test. Though we only pass by his grace and by his power and preservation, yet God crowns his own gifts and he gives his rewards to his grace. This is why the psalmist can pray several times in the Old Testament, right? Psalm 26, test me, O Lord, try me, examine my heart and my mind. Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, 
and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, there's in the one sense, I want to pray and I hear you. I want to pray, please don't test me, Lord. I don't want to be tested like Abraham. But on the other hand, we have to say with the psalmist, right? Test me, Lord. Know my heart. Be glorified in my life. Just help me to endure. Be with me. Lead me not into temptation, but, but deliver me from evil. Right? And so, on the one hand, yes, we are. We're tested like Abraham, everything else. It's our greatest service to God when it's difficult and we continue to persevere. But in another sense, beloved, no one's been tested like Abraham. It's a unique test because it shows forth the Christ. It's part of redemptive history that we read about and we see Jesus in. And we're not called to do that like Abraham was, right? To show forth the sacrifice of Christ in our own child. But Abraham was. And it's an intense test. And sometimes when we are in the test, we see the intensity. Think about how Abraham was called in the intensity of that. Leave your country, leave your homeland, leave your father's house. It gets harder. Notice the text here. Take your son, your only son, and again in the Hebrew order, whom you love, Isaac. Take laughter. Take what made you laugh. Take the laughter of your wife's heart and kill him. God doesn't just say, Isaac will be taken. That would have been a horrible thing to hear. He says, Isaac will die. God doesn't just say, Isaac will die which would have been horrible to hear. He says Isaac will be violently killed. God doesn't just say Isaac will be violently killed, but you, Abraham, will kill him. And God doesn't just say you will kill your son, but you will actually kill him as an act of worship to me. You will worship me with the blood of your son on your hands. That's the test that Abraham was put through. And not just that, but go to Moriah. And I love the way the text says, on one of the hills I will show you this insignificant sacrifice. doesn't really matter where it takes place. Moriah is three days from Beersheba, Jerusalem, Beersheba. 50 miles, a little give or take. Three days. For three days, Abraham has to have this in his heart and mind. No wonder he cut the wood. Though he had many servants and he's over 100 years old. Moriah is only mentioned one other time in the Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Did you know that? The temple mount is Mount Moriah. And Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. Now, 2 Chronicles doesn't call attention to Abraham. It actually says on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David, Solomon's father David, at the place, listen, that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Remember when David ordered that that census because he was puffed up in pride and God began to judge Israel because David was the king. And so the, the angel of the Lord began striking people dead in Jerusalem. And David went and prayed to God and said, Strike me in my father's house, but spare these. And the angel paused and David went and bought this land. And he, and he offered this sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And it turned away God's wrath, as it were. And now Abraham's going to offer this sacrifice long before, a thousand years earlier, 
to show forth the turning away of God's wrath. And then from Solomon on for a thousand years, this is where Abraham's children, the, the Jews, would offer all their sacrifices right at this point, showing forth all of that blood and all of that covering, showing forth the atonement, showing forth the payment of sins that one day would be made and will be made complete and not just in this picture. And I know, I know that people wrestle with this. That the penalty of sin is, is death. And that God demands payment by blood. And that's because that's what, what sin calls for. It's not amazing that God would demand payment by blood. It's amazing that he would allow sinners to live without an atonement or without immediate judgment. The amazing thing is that so many who sin so much and so greatly and who, who destroy, if possible, the glory of God would be allowed to live and have pleasure and benefit. That's the hard thing to imagine, not that God would require justice. And of course, the fulfillment of this Sacrifice is Christ. This is the place where another son, only son, who was loved by his father, had to carry the wood to the place of sacrifice and be bound to it. And that's what Jesus fulfilled for us. This is the type and its fulfillment. Secondly, I want you to notice faith in its object faith in its object. God tests our faith in his word. How does he do that? Well, he sets his providence over against his word. That's the way we're always tested. Have you ever thought of it that way? The providence of God seems to be saying one thing and God's word says something else and you're tested. Will you keep the word or will you do something that looks like you need to do? That means breaking the word. That's what Abraham and Sarah did several times, right? God said, you're going to have a son. God said it's got to be Abraham's son. He didn't say anything about Sarah. Sarah's barren. She's past the age of childbearing. Oh, let's corrupt marriage and break God's clear word for marriage because in his providence, we can't have children. We must have to break God's word and give Abraham a second wife like a pagan. They they failed that one. The providence of God looked like they should do that, but they should have trusted in his word and they should have waited. They brought a whole lot of heartache to their house by not trusting in his word, by doing what providence was seeming to say. But here's the thing. And this is the the whole point of the test, right? God is the one in control and God in his providence is never going to do anything by which you're going to have to break his word to serve him. Never. Yet we fall for that all the time. All the time. Can't tell you how many times we see that in the, in the church and in church government, especially whenever we have to do some kind of discipline, right? It looks like, you know, I, I know what God's word says about divorce, but, you know, me and my spouse, we just don't get along, and it must be that we should get a divorce, even though there's no biblical grounds, right? Or I had this job, and I know that, you know, I'm supposed to not steal, but, you know, it's really hard at work, and my boss persecutes me, so I have to, like, you know, do things, cheat on my time card, blah, blah, blah. You know, or whatever, a million things. Every temptation that you get, which is on Satan's side, break God's word because you need to. But God is testing you. Don't you realize the God that's put you in that situation is in control? And he wants you to obey his word. 
And that's the way we're always tested, but not the way Abraham was tested. That's the significant thing here. God does not cause his providence to look like it's going against his word. God causes his word to go against his word. God's word to Isaac or to Abraham was, In Isaac your seed shall be called. That's why he had to throw Ishmael out of the house. In Isaac your seed shall be called. All of your seed, all of the blessing, the blessing on all of the nations in Isaac, go and kill Isaac. Those are two words from God. In Isaac, all the blessing, kill Isaac. How can that be? The word is going against the word. Do you see the, the difficulty of the temptation for Abraham? We never get that. If you, have, if you think a word of Scripture is against the word of Scripture, you're interpreting at least one of those passages wrong. And if you think you're getting a conviction, an impression, a word from God that goes against Scripture, it's wrong. This is God's word. All right. I have no doubt that he leads us and convicts us. And, and, and even we, we can... Say that we feel God is directing us to do something. Sometimes it's clear. If you're a husband, God is directing you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's his will, right? So we could say that kind of stuff, but you never want to think, oh, but God's telling me to do something that in the Bible is forbidden, or God is telling me to do something in the Bible, not do something in the Bible that's commanded. That can never be, all right? But for Abraham, that was. I mean, think of the difficulty of that, the cause uh, uh, dissonance that he would have had. God tests us with the things of this world, with good things, right? Sometimes you're tempted to make your spouse maybe um, your focus in life rather than God, God's above. Or your children, people can idolize their children or possessions or wealth or work. Or work which is commanded and good can become an idol. You can put too much in it. The test is, will we put anything before God? Will we put anything before God? And that's what Abraham is tested with. Will he put even his hope, as it were, in God before God? Because when he kills Isaac, he kills, in a sense, the object of his faith. His faith was to be in the seed. Salvation will come through the seed. How can he do it? He can't tell anybody. Verse 5, it's obvious the servants don't know. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we'll come back. You know, Abraham's over 100 years old, 113, 120, I think, between that range. Because he's 100 when he has Isaac and Isaac is 13 to 20, I would say. A young man, a lad. He's strong enough to carry the wood and Abraham gives it to him because he's stronger, the younger. So he's not a toddler. It's got to be, like I said, 13 to 20-ish. And if these servants see Abraham begin to bind his son and put him on the altar, they're going to stop and say, the old man is senile. He's losing it. He thinks his son is a lamb. And they would have stepped in and stopped him. So he has to get rid of them. They don't know about it. What happens when he comes back to them and the blood of Isaac is spattered on his garments and on his hands? Do you think he told Sarah before he left what he was going to do? Sarah would have stopped him. You're nuts. You're not taking my son. I will die before you take my son. By the way, there's an old rabbinic tradition that goes back to the um, early part of church history, first four or five hundred years. I didn't nail down exactly when it was, but several different rabbinic um, theories that Isaac was 37 years old when this text took place. Why 37? 
because Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. And she's 127 when she dies. And they want to explain why Sarah would die suddenly at the young age of 127. Because Abraham lives to be 175 and Isaac 180. They're still living that long now. And they say, their theory is that Abraham told Sarah and she died. Because it killed her. That he was going to sacrifice Isaac. Now I think there's no reason to believe that in the text. And I don't know anybody that believes that today. Like I said, Isaac is probably about, I'd say anywhere from 13 to 20. But he didn't tell Sarah. He could not tell Sarah. He could not tell the servants. Even Isaac doesn't know. Verse 7. My father. He said, my son. He said, where's the, look, the fire, the wood. Where's the lamb? Isaac is old enough to know how to worship God. Where's the lamb? He doesn't know. He doesn't know what his father's going to do. He's kept it from him. All of this time. Abraham had to show that he loved God more, that he trusted God more, that as God himself says, that he feared God more than even his own naturally good love for his son. And again, in his son is the Messiah. His love for faith and, and, or his love for Christ and his faith in Christ, in a sense, is in his son, whom God has said. He must kill, and he knows that it's God. This is clearly God. This is where the supernatural cannot be denied. You cannot somehow psychologicalize this and make this into some weird spiritual lesson. You know, Abraham felt like God was saying, go kill your son. You don't do that. God spoke, and he knew it was God. Supernaturally from heaven. That's the only reason and the only way this makes sense. And again, that's why I think the liberal scholars hate this text. Not only because they don't believe that sin is really sinful and that God would be wrong to require this, but they don't believe in the supernatural. Therefore, nobody would ever be right to go and offer up their son. So this is a myth to them. But Isaac doesn't know. Sarah doesn't know. The servants don't know. And it's funny because Abraham, remember how he bargained with God for the souls of Sodom and Gomorrah, how bold he was? What if there be 40? What if there be five missing? Oh, Lord, you know, I've taken it upon myself to, to speak to God. I am who I am but dust and ashes. I just speak one more time, Lord, over and over. Gets down to 10, right? The Abraham in chapter 15 who says, but how shall I know that I will inherit it? What will you give me? Seeing that Eliezer, a servant in my house, is my heir. Asking God for the sign boldly, right? What about in chapter 17 when God is telling Abraham about the birth of Isaac and, and Abraham laughs. It says, oh, Lord, that's crazy. Let Ishmael live before you. Not a word from Abraham disputing this, arguing this, crying out to God not to do this. Now, he may indeed have done that, but Scripture doesn't record it, so it's useless for us to speculate. But you know he felt the burden of doing this. And I don't know how He could do it except what Scripture itself says. And this is why, you know, you can take out all of the mystery and the speculation. There is an answer. Scripture tells us the faith that Abraham had. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Notice the past tense, because he did it in his heart. Offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the uh, promises offered up, past tense, his only son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And then here it is, verse 19, concluding. This is what he was thinking. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. That's what Abraham believed. I know in Isaac my seed shall be called. I believe that. I know God has said, kill Isaac. I believe that. Therefore, when I kill Isaac, God's going to raise him up. Abraham believed in the risen Christ. That was the object of his faith. Thirdly, I want you to notice salvation and its shadow. I want you to notice salvation and its shadow. God gives us the grace to endure every test. But how difficult Abraham's test was every step that he took. And how incongruous in a sense that he had to pretend like he and his son are going to worship God in a normal way. And and you get that in verse 6. And in verse 8, the two of them went together. The two of them went together. By the way, this text from any literary perspective is an absolute masterpiece. In, In the drama and in the intensity and in the way that it builds, it's an absolute masterpiece. Apart from being the word of God. Apart from being inspired. It's just incredible. It's amazing how it develops this text. How you as the reader know what's going on. And you see all of this as you're going through it. Again, nobody knows how old exactly Isaac is, but he's old enough to carry the wood. He's a young man. At some point, Abraham tells him, or Isaac just allows himself to be bound without a word, but we see it in verse 9. Then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, just so nonchalantly, right? And he bound Isaac, his son, and he placed him on the wood. Did he say something to him first? Did he just go behind his son and start tying him? And his son just let him because he trusted his his dad. And he trusted that his dad knew God and they were going to worship God. We don't know. But every indication is that he was completely willing. And Abraham, we know, was willing. You and I have... Have the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God who is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so you can never say as a Christian, well, this temptation was too hard. Wasn't my fault that I sinned. You can never say that. Because you always have the grace from God to resist. And to say no. And to flee even. All right. Abraham's temptation, as we said, is unique. He's foreshadowing the father who willingly sends his son. And his son who willingly goes to die. And to be a sacrifice for the worship of God. And again, as I said, I I didn't bring it up. But the, the, the thing that the liberal commentators hate. By the way, Bailey Cadman, the former pastor. He went to Pittsburgh Theological Seminary here in Pittsburgh. That's the main line. Presbyterian Church's Theological Seminary. And, and for many years, uh, mainline churches have been under liberal and progressive theology that discounts the Bible as, uh, uh, as, as the Word of God any more than like anything can be the Word of God. And that, um, that um, 
sees uh, scripture and the miracles as myth and it wants to demythologize, you know, the, the scriptures and that sort of thing. But, but overwhelmingly, what they hate about scripture is not so much the supernatural, though they don't like that because they don't believe it, but it's that God would require blood. I remember Bailey telling me, one of his professors talking about this text and say, this is a monstrous, bloodthirsty God if you believe this literally happened. This is a seminary professor, a minister of the gospel, calling God bloodthirsty and monstrous. When I, again, the only thing that's surprising about this is, is why is Isaac still alive? He should have been killed at birth. And so should have Abraham. And so should have Sarah and everyone else. But they don't see that. They don't see how sin is against God's goodness and and beauty and truth and, and destroys it. It's the thing that God hates. It's the thing that is evil. And it corrupts us to the point where we can't be right in his sight. He must destroy us or his honor somehow has to be restored. How can that happen? How can we who have sinned against him, who have fallen, who have natures that are opposed to him, who hate him, every unbeliever does, scripture says, hates him. How can we possibly restore what we've taken from him? I mean, we're required perfection and we've sinned. Even if you could live perfection for the rest of eternity, You can't make up for what you did, even if you just sinned once. And that one sin is cosmic treason. It's blasphemy because we're made in the image of God. And we defy him. It's defiance. How do you restore that honor? You know, think of the, I always think of, when you think of honor being restored, and I remember the Bugs Bunny movies, you know, where you take the glove off and, you know, you've insulted me. And of course, there's a brick in the glove when he hits him in the face with it. But can you imagine, and and actually Anselm does this, the great teacher of the church, Anselm. um, He talks about, in the uh, 12th century, I believe, how just one blow to the face of Christ, the sinless son of God, just that one stroke to his face, the insult, the indignity, the, the, the great act of offense that that is, but for Christ to willingly suffer that and offer it to God. Just that blow, he said, would be enough to suffice for the salvation of a thousand worlds. That's how high the dignity of Christ is because the higher one is, the more value it is when he suffers. And when he suffers willingly, the more value that it is. And Christ willingly goes and offers himself to God. Abraham doesn't know how this story is going to end, but he knows that God will keep his word. He believes that God will raise up Isaac. And that's why he says in verse eight, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. God will provide. That was his faith. And that's what he also said to the two men, right? The lad and I will go yonder. Did you catch it? And we will come back. He didn't know how. He didn't know when. But some way, somehow, Isaac 
was going to come back. And God kept his word. Skip down to verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. The Lord will provide. It's literally the Lord will see. Yareh or Ra'ah. To see. The Lord will be seen. Right? The Lord will see. Think about it when God looked at Israel suffering under Egypt at the end of chapter 2 in Exodus. And it said God heard the groaning of his people and he saw. He saw, and then he knew he was going to act, right? God will see you, and God will save you. It's what we get the, the title Jehovah Yarah, Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, that's what this is. Yahweh Yarah. The Lord will provide. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Matthew Henry said, Quote, Abraham was ready to give up his son for a sacrifice to the honor of God. And on that occasion, God promised to give his son a sacrifice for the salvation of man. So fourthly and lastly, notice salvation and its certainty. Notice salvation and its certainty. The two New Testament passages that speak of this text, both speak of it, as I pointed out to you, in the past tense. We read the part from um, Hebrews where it says he offered up. He offered up. But also in the book of James, it says, was not Abraham our father? I'm sorry. Uh, it says that he, ble- ah, I can't find it now. He, take my word for it. He's, <laughs> it says he offered him up past tense. I don't know how I lost that. But what I want to talk about is this, this part about Abraham being justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar. Oh, that's where it says it. He offered up there. See, I was right. He offered up his son on the altar. How do we understand that he was justified by works in James? Well, what do we understand? Look at, our, look at our text, how it says in our text, verses 15 to 18, by the way, the last time God speaks to Abraham from heaven. Verse 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, notice, because you have done this thing. Do you see that? And then at the end, Verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Is it because Abraham obeyed that salvation comes? It's not salvation by grace alone. It's salvation by grace plus the work of Abraham. Right? You better start um, including the uh, merits of the saints. That is not the case. That is not the case. First of all, everything that God says in verses 15 to 18, he's already promised to Abraham by, by sheer grace. Do you remember when God swore in that covenant ceremony by passing through the parts in that theophany, the burning oven and the flaming torch, God passes through the pieces of the animal symbolically saying, I will tear myself apart before I don't bring to pass all the promises that he's already promised him. Blessing, salvation, uh, the, the salvation of the world. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed in your seed. All of it's already been promised by grace alone. Abraham was asleep. When God did that ceremony. And so this adds nothing. It just confirms. What God has already promised. And that's what Abraham shows forth in his works. That's how he's quote justified by works. He shows that he is a believer. As James says show me your sure faith without your works. And I by my works I'll show you my faith. That's what God is testing. He's not testing the obedience of Abraham. He's testing his faith. Will he believe God enough to even sacrifice his own son? And notice in verse 12 where it says, and God explains this to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know, here's the reason. 
Would have been a lot easier if God would have said that at the beginning, huh? Abraham, I'm going to test you, see if you fear me or not. Now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son. Now God already knew, okay? We know God already knew. God already knew he would do it. Didn't even need to test him. But Abraham had to live out his faith. Abraham had to do it, right? God knows everything you're going to do too. He knows the moment you came to Christ and believed. Did you not have to do it then? We still live our lives. It's still worked out in us, right? Abraham has to do this so that he knows, so that the world knows, so that Abraham is justified and shown before the whole world to be, to be a child of God. That's what scripture says to us, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within you. That's how we, you know, Paul says, test yourself, examine yourself, see if you be in the faith. How do we do that? Is it real? Do I show forth a changed heart? Because if I'm a believer, I have a new heart. And if I have a new heart, I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to be sorry for my sins. And so Abraham is confirming and proving that he has faith. John Calvin says it this way, quote, what is freely given... All these blessings in 15 to 18. What is freely given is yet called the reward of works. Only, Calvin says, only so that God may excite his own people to the love of well-doing. For, listen to this, for God gives to his own benefits the title of reward. Doesn't he do that all the time? Doesn't he promise us rewards? Did we earn them? Jesus promises rewards. Matthew 10, 42. Even one who gives a cup of cold water in my name shall by no means lose his reward. Did that cup deserve it? Augustine says that God crowns his own graces. He gives gifts to what he himself has given. He has given us the grace to have the heart to partially do a good work because it's never perfect. And then he rewards that grace that he himself gave. Because our best works are splendid vices. But they're done really and truly with faith in Christ and love to God. And therefore God rewards what he has given already. He crowns his gifts with greater gifts. That's what we get, rewards of grace. And that's what God is confirming to Abraham in this text. All these blessings, right? That I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you. He's already said, as the stars of heaven. He said that back in 15. Look at the stars, see if you can count them. He's already promised all the nations of the earth. But now he's reiterating it, emphasizing it. And he's, he's saying to Abraham, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servants. Because Abraham's work could not have done it. He could not have earned salvation. That's why God stops him. Even if Abraham would have went through with it, it wouldn't have saved us. Isaac's not a perfect sacrifice. He couldn't save anybody. All of his bloodshed couldn't have saved anybody. And Abraham doing that work couldn't have saved anybody. No, no, this was a picture again of the Lord Jesus. God proved Abraham's faith because 2,000 years later, as we said, another well-beloved son, only son, would carry that wood and be bound to it. And though 12 legions of angels were straining at the bit to put a stop to it with one word from Jesus, he doesn't utter a word. And this time no angel is sent from heaven to say, Abraham, Abraham. No, because it was God's plan to do it this way. This is an anticipation of that. And in fact, Jesus calls attention to the fact, this is what I'll close with, that Abraham knew him. 
that Abraham saw his day. Remember the Jews get mad at him and they say, you're not yet 50 years old and you know Abraham. Do you remember what Jesus said on that occasion? He says this puzzling thing. John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, when did Abraham see the day of Jesus? When did he see anything about Jesus? How could Jesus say this? How could he say he saw it so clearly that he was glad? You know, R.C. Sproul has said, and I've told you this before, that his favorite verse of Scripture, if he could just have one verse of Scripture trapped on an island or something to comfort him for the rest of his life, it would be Genesis 15, 17. When the smoking oven and the flaming torch passed between the parts, because that is God swearing to Abraham. Now, God says again, I've sworn on myself. He's just calling attention. He's already done the covenant ceremony in 17, the original swearing in 15. So the oath has already been sworn, but God continues to repeat it, right? Just like we recovenant with him every time we take the Lord's Supper, we recovenant with him. But he continues to repeat it. But he's already bound himself to Abraham, but he swears again here. And I would take, I have to say to you, I wouldn't take Genesis 15, 17. I like what our R.C. says, and that's a comfort. But I would take Genesis twenty-two thirteen. I think this would be my verse if I could only have one. Verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its own horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. That's when Abraham saw Christ. That's when he was glad. You better believe he was glad. Because he saw his son wasn't going to die. In fact, his son was going to live forever. Because another son would come. And would offer the blood that was needed. That would atone for all of our sins. Beloved, God has promised to do. And has indeed done for you. If you're a believer. What Abraham couldn't do. What you can't do. And it's certain because he loved us enough to send his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your love that we see most amazingly in the cross. We deserved your wrath, yet you poured it upon Jesus so that we could have peace with God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.